welcome to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by United Poultry Concerns. I'm your host, Hope Bohannock, and you can find all our past shows at our website, hopefortheanimalspodcast.org, and you can find my contact information there as well. So today on the podcast, we have Andy Tabar joining us again. Andy was on the pod talking about fat justice and the vegan movement in episode 24, and this just happens to be episode 34. So 10 episodes later, he's joining us again. I really didn't plan it that way, but I'm so grateful to have Andy uh, come back to the show, and we're going to talk about something that I think is very important, and that is our online vegan advocacy and how we present ourselves online as vegans. So just a little about Andy, if you are unfamiliar with him, he is the co-host of the Bearded Vegans podcast. That's a podcast in its fifth year, and they discuss ethical gray areas of living vegan. They kind of dig deep into controversial or trending or interesting vegan issues. Andy's also the owner of Compassion Co., an organic U.S.-made clothing line. And in our conversation today, we get into talking about online trolls and self-confirmation bias and the backfire effect. And we do offer some tips and suggestions for making your social media experience more positive, more effective. And I hope it's helpful. We are not and don't claim to be experts in any way other than our collective decades of vegan activism and being on social media as vegan advocates from the inception of social media. So hopefully you get something out of this discussion. And there's a couple of things I do want to say about this episode. So deep in, around 50 or 55 minutes in, there was a technical glitch, and I lost my groovy high-tech podcasting microphone, and it switched to the computer mic, and I didn't even know that happened. Luckily, Andy still sounds great all the way through. It was just on my end, and it doesn't sound terrible, so I'm still going to use that part of the conversation, but I but I notice it. I notice the difference. And if you can, please forgive the lower quality audio. It's just for the last 10 minutes or so of the episode. As I told someone recently, I'm really only just pretending to have the technical skills to create a podcast. So I'm just grateful that it records it all every time. So <laughs> we're lucky to have the interview. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, so today we have joining us Andy Tabar. Hi, Andy. Hey, Hope. Hey. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so good to have you. So today's going to be a little different than my usual just interview and questions because, well, today I've got something to say. (laughs) So a little background on this. Well over a year ago, I tried to cajole Andy into doing a panel with me at the National Animal Rights Conference on this subject on online etiquette. But then a pandemic hit and there was no conference. Uh, This last year, there wasn't any conference. And 
Well, Andy talks about this issue on his podcast, The Bearded Vegans Podcast, with his co-host Paul, and I highly recommend this podcast. They are nerdy and fun, and I really love The Bearded Vegans Podcast. And that's why I wanted him on the panel, because they they talk about these issues a lot on their podcast, and I've learned so much from Andy and Paul on these issues. And I thought, well, why don't why don't we just put the make the panel on this podcast on the Hope for the Animals podcast? So Andy has graciously agreed to join me today, so we can hash out these issues. And so we're basically having our panel here right now, the Animal Rights panel right here. So he is my guest, so it's kind of an interview, but possibly a little more of a panel because, like I said, I got something to say. <laughs> so let's get into it. Andy, are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do this. All right. Awesome. So I do want to just start with you, though, a little about you so our listeners can kind of get to know you, maybe maybe about your podcast, how you started your podcast, how long you've been vegan, those kinds of things, and just to get to know you a bit, and then we'll get into the topic. Sure. So I've been vegan since uh, late 2007, and as far as the podcast goes, about six years ago or so, my, my good friend, Paul, who, well, I guess he was almost more of an acquaintance at that point, but he asked me if I wanted to do a podcast about veganism and I had been wanting to do a podcast. I had gotten super into listening to podcasts with all this driving that I had been doing for a number of aspects of my life. And I never thought I could do a solo one. So hats off, hats off to you, Hope. But uh, <laughs> as soon as Paul said, would you like to do a vegan podcast? I just immediately was like, yes, I would, I would love to do this. And it, and just sort of, I only do things like 110%. And Paul was probably not expecting that and just sort of like hit the ground running. And the beauty of podcasts, I think, is that they can evolve over time and you can sort of figure them out and get audience feedback and all of that. So when we started, we were a little bit more of a, let's talk about some food, let's talk about some news, have a couple interviews. And we've sort of morphed into a thing where mostly what we like to talk about are like ethical gray areas in veganism, things like is it okay to eat roadkill, for instance? Um, and also issues within <laughs> the vegan community, ways to make our activism more effective. And I think that like that last aspect is is really what we're going to kind of get into here, because I feel like I spent so much time trying to figure out how to be a really good activist and and trying to apply that. Uh, especially when doing sort of street outreach type activism. And so we like love to kind of get into those things. So um, it's it's fun to to dive into topics that we don't know how we feel about them and, and kind of hash them out. And we release a new episode every Wednesday for the last five and a half years or so. Wow. Yes. And you guys do such a good job. It's a lot of fun. And uh, and I'll also say this is Andy's second appearance on the Hope for the Animals podcast. And he gets a little more into his origin story a little further back than the podcast in, uh, in that episode. And that one is about fat shaming and body uh, issues and veganism. So I highly recommend you go back and listen to Andy's first appearance on this podcast. But today I have invited him here to talk about online activism and etiquette. And really, I think what we really want to talk about is vegan hostility <laughs> in the online community. 
And, you know, there are so many incidents and anecdotes that could be examples of why I want to talk about this so much. So many cringeworthy interactions that I have observed, but I'll just talk about one really quick to kind of get us into this and, and why I want to talk about this. And, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I love podcasts. I listen to one called Climate One, and it's a climate crisis, climate change podcast. And they were interviewing a woman who was a social media influencer, an environmentalist social media influencer. And the interviewer asked her, well, you know, because your whole world is social media, you probably have to deal with a lot of trolls. There's probably a lot of climate denier trolls that you have to deal with, you know, climate deniers. And she said, she said, yeah, yeah, there's some of that. She said, but you know, really it's the vegans she said, the vegans are so mean. They are just awful to me. Uh, they, you know, they're always on me about not talking about animal agriculture enough. They are just, they're so mean. I have to block them all. And I'm sitting there just cringing, you know, <laughs> I'm like, oh my God. Wow. That's yeah. That's who I want to be known as. I want to be known as the meanest person on the internet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who would want to be in that group? I mean, it's just, it's so crazy. The activists, the online space is becoming really toxic and unwelcoming. And I think that it doesn't help animals. And the anonymity really creates this, this kind of awful behavior. I actually know people personally, uh, fellow activists that that we've done leafleting together and tabling together. And when we're out face to face, they are, they smile, they're very nice. They'll have a conversation, but then these same people, I'll see some of their posts online and there's just so much anger and rage and fury and antagonism. I mean, just really awful and attacking directly of people so I think uh, we, we've kind of lost that compassion and decorum and, and uh, etiquette that you have face to face. So I think it's really something important to talk about. And I'll, I'll just, I'll, setting the stage a little more, I'll give one more example. So I was on a Facebook group, a local Facebook group, and someone had posted something to the effect of, that they were they were vegan now. They said, "Oh, I, you know, I'm vegan now, but I do eat a little honey. I, I, there's still some honey that I'm eating in in certain things, and you know, she mentioned a couple products or something." You would have thought that this woman had just posted that she had tortured and killed an animal in her backyard. You know, <laughs> I mean, she got so many comments and posts that were just so attacking, like, you can't call yourself vegan and you're hurting bees. Do you know what you're doing to the bees? And, you know, I thought, wow, you know, if she was vegan, she's probably not now. I, we probably just lost one, you know, <laughs> um, because people were just so, I mean, it wasn't everyone, but it certainly was more than one person. So I think that, ah, um, I would just say a, a little bit of advice up front, and then I'm sure we'll get more into it later. But if you are feeling agitated or frustrated or angry when you're typing a post, you're in this heightened state of emotion, maybe take a breath before hitting, you know, before hitting enter, just walk away, go to the kitchen, have a snack, do something else for a minute. And then 
ask yourself how this could be said maybe more diplomatically, more respectfully, so it can be heard. And I don't mean to say that we can't be angry. You know, I certainly we can be angry, we can have emotion, but maybe focusing that emotion on the industry and not on individuals, not attacking people personally, because we want everyone to be, well, okay, we want allies, right? We want people to be sympathetic to animals. And, and who do we want to be sympathetic to animals? Everyone. That's everyone has the potential, right? To be an ally. So trying not to attack people personally and putting yourself in the mind of a non-vegan. Think about what a non-vegan would think about your post. Would they want to be in the vegan club with so much hatred and vitriol and attacking? I just, I really feel like mean posts don't help animals. Okay, I, I've, I've ranted on this uh, initial thoughts long enough. So Andy, what do you think about all this? Well, Hope, there's so much to talk about here. Um, I'm, I'm going to try to address a lot of the things that you said. I think the first of which is I, I'm sort of increasingly wondering how can we actually conduct activism online? And is it a place that is worth spending a lot of our energy on? Yeah. And obviously, especially, especially right now, like pandemic world where everybody is connected via internet more so than usual, but all of the things that I have found to be incredibly helpful in in-person interactions and things that I have honed over the years of, of, touring and doing street activism and outreach and all of that is like, it kind of goes out the window online, whether, whether it's me doing it or it's other people are kind of intercepting my well-meaning efforts. And, and so what I mean by that is if I am talking to someone, I used to tour all the time. We talked a little bit about this in last, in the last episode we did together. I used to tour on the 10 billion lives tour. We would show people a four-minute video about what happens to animals in the, you know, the animal exploitation agriculture system. And then we'd talk to them about going vegan. And in those conversations, I learned that it was really important for me to ask them way more questions than I was actually talking. Mm. That it was important for me to kind of lead them down the path a little bit, leave the breadcrumbs, but mostly to get them to do the thinking. And that while I was doing that, I should be kind of, you know, mirroring their attitude and behaviors and language and all of those things and to smile and be friendly and joke a little bit and all of that. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, I try to employ those techniques online on Facebook. And the online world kind of condenses everything down mm. and boils it down. And I think that it's really unhelpful in a lot of ways. Like I think that the hashtagification, the memification of activism just leaves out so much nuance. But if I'm trying to have a conversation with someone, they've made a post that I say, ah, I disagree with this. And I think that I should interject and try to change their mind. And so my real world thing would be to say, ask them a question. Oh, why do you think it is that veganism is so expensive? Or why do you have that perception? And then before that person can respond, you get five, six, seven, ten people saying, you're a horrible garbage person and how dare you? And here's all the reasons that you're wrong. Yeah. And so even if I have the best of intentions and am trying to work off everything that I know about the psychology of social change, getting others to go along with that 
somehow just seems like such a fruitless endeavor. Mm. So, and that is of course not to nullify the conversation we're about to have, because I think it's all very important, but I, I increasingly wonder about where is my time best spent online? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that before I continue with my further thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. Because I, I totally agree with you. I think that we just need to be more selective, I think, with our time and energy in social media, just jumping into every single argument, you know, it just, I, I, so I'll give a good example. So I'm actually, I get tagged a lot. I don't know if this happens to you, Andy, but people will tag me when there's an argument, you know, and it's going back and forth about something, some vegan issue. And the person will tag like me and a few other, you know, more, I guess, prominent or whatever vegans, outspoken vegans. And they're hoping that we're going to swoop in and have the most effective arguments to shut this person down, you know. Uh, so this this happens to me on occasion. And it happened to me recently with a dairy post where there was some, I don't know what the original post was, but someone had said something about, you know, dairy being crucial to health and important or something. I, I don't remember what it was, but, but, you know, they were arguing for dairy consumption. And then of course there were a bunch of vegans that were countering it and it was going back and forth. And, and we're, we're going to get into some other issues like the backfire effect and things like that, that kind of uh, relate to this. But so I was tagged and and the expectation was that I would come in and give all the effective arguments against dairy and, you know, really like put this guy, you know, in his place. But I didn't do that. And I don't do that now. I, I, I used to and I have. I've certainly, you know, done it before. But what I decided to do instead is I read the thread and there was a woman who had posted on the thread this is why I buy organic dairy. And I was like, ah, oh, huh. And so I private messaged her and I said, I, I saw your post on the, that dairy thread and uh, thank you so much for caring and for, you know, looking into it and, and buying organic. But just, just so you know, you know, I've, I've done extensive research on this and dairy's no better. You know, I kind of gave her a few gentle and, and respectful reasons why organic isn't all that better. And, you know, because it was in a private message, she was very receptive and she actually came back and said, oh, wow, I, I didn't know. And, you know, she asked another question or something. So we had a nice conversation and it was very positive. And I, I feel like it was just way more effective than me just throwing out a bunch of points and going back and forth in this very heated debate. So I think we can look for ways, you know, to be more uh, selective. And one of those things that I, that I really recommend is private messaging, you know, when it's possibly something heated and someone's all defensive or whatever. I think if you, if you private message that someone who is, you know, in this heated debate or is, or maybe someone who posted something unkind or insensitive or problematic, instead of calling them out publicly and, and there might be a place for that. And we can talk about that. But I like to go and private message them and just kind of maybe, you know, gently explain. And and I did that actually to a couple of the honey people, going back to the honey example. I private messaged a couple of the more really biting comments that were just really awful and explained to them that, you know, personal attacks don't really further 
our advocacy or help animals. And, and I've really found that people will listen more in a private setting when they don't have, they don't have an audience to feel like they have to defend themselves, you know, uh, and it's just you and them. Uh, I've had more luck kind of having better conversations there. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that the the moving to the the DMs or the private message is such an important thing to do because it's kind of the closest thing we can recreate to having that in-person conversation. You don't yeah. they're they're still probably being really pissed off by all the people commenting on the thread, but at least with you you can have that private conversation with them and then you can employ all of the the tactics and things you've learned about effective communication and all of that. So I think that that is like just absolutely invaluable advice. And we've, we've had that even just with people that have some sort of critique of the podcast and we are totally open to that. We're constantly changing our minds and adjusting our opinions and things like that. But sometimes people come at you super hard mm. in a public post, like commenting on the episode or something. And then you respond to them kindly, often privately, and then the tone changes immediately. It's yeah. like, oh, thank. They're like, you know, thank you for being receptive. Like nine times, even like 95 out of 100 times, that is the case. And that there's something about the public display of the comment section that makes people feel like, at least this is my intuition on it, my gut feeling that people can't back down, that you have yeah. to be seen yeah. as, as strong and not right. weak. Mm. And, and, and I, I, I do think that sort of the opposite side of that is that sometimes we have to understand that if we're leaving a comment, it's not necessarily about changing the original poster's mind. Sometimes it's just about being there. So people that are reading it and probably not commenting can see that there is an opposing opinion and like to keep that in mind that maybe your goal is not necessarily to change the opinion of someone. So I, I do think that there is value in commenting publicly, but how you do it, what you say, and being very selective about when you do it is incredibly important. And, you know, you said you resisted the urge to like throw out a million facts. And I think that that is another thing that's really important to keep in mind because as vegans, we know we have so much factual information on our side. Uh, there are plenty of vegans who employ things that are not factual and manipulation and all that stuff. But if you look at like the environmental data, obviously the animal exploitation is absolutely undeniable. We know we have all these facts and figures and statistics on our side. But if you're ever in an argument with someone that's just throwing a bunch of figures at you, even if you are like, I guess they're right, like you never feel like you never feel like they're actually teaching you anything. You're just kind of being destroyed with information and in the moment you feel bad and the next day you dust yourself off and you're like, well, that guy, that guy was a jerk and nothing really changes. I think that activism that is ultimately based on sort of fear-based compliance is a short-term gain. Even if you get someone in that moment to say, you're right, I'm wrong about this thing, that's not likely to generate long-term behavioral change in people and certainly not likely to generate long-term thoughts that's not likely to change your worldview as well. So I think that it's important that even if we feel like we have all the facts on our side, activism that's based on dominating people and destroying them with facts 
it's more about making us feel good. Usually it's more about making us feel like we're in the moral, right. Than it is about actually affecting any sort of change. So the rage is justified. What's happening to animals is horrific and horrible, but ask ourselves, how can we direct that rage and what can we do that actually helps animals as opposed to making ourselves feel good? Right. Exactly. I mean, you know, do you just want that endorphin rush of asserting my views and, you know, throwing out the, uh, everything that I know, or do we really want this person to actually consider veganism and help the animals? You know, it's, it's, it's so important to have that empathy and connection with people and humility and decency and all of that. And I think we really lose that online. Yeah, all good points and I think that a good way to start too is, you know, by by having that empathy, acknowledging that you understand where that person's coming from and maybe uplifting that person in some way like, you know, thank you for engaging in this conversation with me and I used to eat meat too and you know things like that that are more connecting rather than just conflicting. So I want to talk about trolls. Let's get into talking about trolls because we're kind of getting into that area. And so what is a troll? A troll is someone who is being deliberately agitating, deliberately adversarial, you know, trying to get a rise, trying to cause conflict. I guess the question is, is it worth arguing? with a troll when someone is obviously just trying to be contradicting. And some people would say, yeah, it is it it is good to argue with them because of the others on the thread. And I think you kind of touched on this with making comments on a thread. You're not only talking to that one person you're replying to, but of course there's other eyeballs on there. So you know, the argument goes, well, you're giving this information out to others, not necessarily trying to convince this person who's so adversarial. But, uh, you know, I, I've, I've come to question that. And I certainly used to do that. I mean, that's when you get agitated and, and you're a vegan activist and you want to, you want to tell the world uh, what's going on. You certainly get caught in these things. But I've, I've, re- I've really been thinking about it. I've really been rethinking it all. And I think that doing that really just gives them attention and gives them oxygen and power. And I saw this really interesting video. It was uh, from the UK. There's a, a group called the Center for Countering Digital Hate. And they were talking about trolls. So this guy from the center, they did a study. He was talking about a study they did where they tracked the online time, the, the uh, amount of time that these trolls were on the internet. And they found that when the trolls were engaged with, when they had engagement and an interaction with someone that went on, then they would stay on and go to other formats and other forums and stay on for longer. But when they were just ignored, shut down, blocked, then suddenly their activity would cease for a period of time. So it just, it, it, it's kind of like, and, and the guy said, if you have an itch, don't scratch it. It will spread. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a really funny way to, to say, but basically he was encouraging people to just don't engage them, just ignore, block, 
don't engage with them. So Andy, what do you think about trolls? Do you feed the trolls? Is there vegan troll food? (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's different types of trolls. There are people that are obviously trolling and they just, you know, you make a vegan post and they'll leave a comment that just says "Mm, bacon or some (laughs) steak emojis or, you know, something like that. Yeah. And those, I think that it's totally fine to block and delete. I think that there is sort of this misconception that online everybody needs access to everybody all the time. And I think it's important that we set our boundaries in real life as well as on the internet and blocking somebody that's just there, that's committed to harassing you, even if it's some low level thing that, you know, if you've been vegan for a a week, you've heard "Mm, bacon a million times already, (laughs) you know, but you can set that boundary. You can say, it's not worth my time. I don't want to deal with this harassment. And then there's also the type of troll that they're asking a question that feels like something that's kind of trolling, but maybe you're not entirely sure. And it could be a question like, well, so you want all the animals to go extinct or something like that. Mm. And my personal policy is if it's a question like that, I will always do my best. At least I will most often respond in a way that is responding as if it's a sincerely asked question, because one, maybe it is two, like you said, other people are reading that thread and maybe they have that question. And then after that, I no longer respond is usually how I handle these things. But as far as someone that's like straight up, just committed to harassing you and all of that kind of stuff, I think that it is not worth anybody's time to engage in that. I've I've seen like videos and stories about people that have turned their troll around and thank you for doing the Lord's work on that. But I think that as like (laughs) vegans, we have such limited time, attention, resources, money, all of that that there are so many people out there that will be receptive to our message immediately or uh, you know, within some amount of time of talking to them, that that is where I'd like to spend most of my energy is to talking to people that are receptive. Mm-hmm. And like, I just, I just feel like as activists, that's a decision we constantly have to make is picking our battles and not engaging with trolls beyond one comment that is an earnest, sincere comment is usually my limit. And that's not based in any science whatsoever, but I've, I've found it to be something that I can sleep with at night. So, yeah, no, I like that. I think that's great. And, and it, it reminds me that I think it's another important point to say that it's okay to let someone else have the last word. Yeah. I, I, I think that, that these comment threads, what happens is people feel or a vegan feels like, well, I can't let that stand, you know, what they just said, I've got to respond to that. And then it just goes on and on and on, you know, and I, I like that you say you respond once, you know, give your thoughts and then just let it go. I think it's okay to do that. You don't have to have the last word, right? Yeah. And, and I think that we we think that by winning an argument that we're helping animals. And I don't think that that's the case. It goes back to what I was saying about destroying people with facts and all of that. But like we don't if if our goal is to make a new vegan, that's what a lot of vegans sort of said as our parameters for effective activism. If our goal is to make new vegans, we don't do that by winning arguments. We do that by creating connections based on empathy and mutual understanding things like you mentioned, which is saying, I also, I was in your shoes two years ago. I was not a vegan 
and like letting people know that we that we weren't born some perfect holier than thou vegan that this was a journey that we went on and were once in their shoes and thinking who would i have wanted to encounter when i was not yet vegan and then being that vegan and i think that that's like something that's important to keep in mind yeah absolutely yeah so let's talk about some psychology a little bit and talk about self-confirmation bias and the backfire effect. And I'll start by saying that, of course, Andy and I are not psychologists. We are not giving medical advice or anything like that, but we have looked into this stuff and kind of have something to say about it. So I feel like, Andy, I want you to start with self-confirmation bias and kind of define it and kind of how it relates. And then I'll maybe take the backfire effect. And, and I know that there's a lot of overlap. They're very similar. Uh, but uh, but why, don't we, why don't we go ahead and have you start with self-confirmation bias? Sure. So, so this self-confirmation bias is kind of when you are looking for the information that you want to find. And there's all, like you said, we're not psychologists. I don't have a bunch of studies that I can list off to prove this right now, but uh, they exist out there that we are more likely to view something that fits in with our worldview, or we're more likely to perceive and receive information that fits in with our worldview as true than if it's something that feels like it contradicts our worldview. And so a lot of that just happens. Like if you're looking for information on Google and you're like, I want to know is, I don't know, I'm trying to think something like, are apples evil? And you Google, are apples evil? You're going to find a bunch of things telling you that apples are evil. Like you're not going to find a bunch of articles that are being like, this is actually why apples are not evil. And so it's sort of like a thing that we psychologically happens with us where we're just sort of self-confirming our, our beliefs. And then also the information we seek out we're most likely to seek out things that are confirming our beliefs as opposed to seeking out something that is opposing our beliefs. And, mm. and that's, that's sort of where yeah. the backfire effect comes in, I suppose. Yeah. And, and I, I just add to that, that it's really amplified by online behavior or the online world uh, because you can fall into these bubbles. So it just, if we already have these kind of we already have these tendencies and then the web, the World Wide web can just really amplify uh, these tendencies. So the backfire effect is similar, but I think the, the, the way it's different is that it's when you're, when two people are involved. So self-confirmation bias is kind of your solo searching for information that reinforces your own uh, ideology. But the backfire effect is when you're having a discussion with someone or there's an argument or a debate of, with differing points of views and your ideology starts to get more embedded as you're arguing your point. So you feel, you start feeling more connected to your views. You start identifying with your viewpoint because you're having to argue it. And I think how it relates to veganism in our activist world is we just want to be careful when we are engaging with someone and we're in an argument and they're arguing back and we're throwing out all our facts. We could just be reinforcing their own views and strengthening their identity as a meat eater or whatever 
instead of what you think is happening, which is that they're hearing your very rational arguments, <laughs> no, that might not be what's going on because of the backfire effect. And Andy, I've heard you say that we need to have a culture where it's okay to be wrong, where when when new information and new facts come into the picture, into your worldview, that you aren't seen as a flip-flopper or, or, or weak-stanced or something like that, that you know it's okay to change our minds when we are presented with factual information. So um, yeah, so what would you say about the backfire effect? Well, yeah, I, I definitely think it's important to create that culture where it's like valued for people to change their their stance or their opinion with new yeah. information. And I, I wonder how far that can go because a lot of it is just our brains, our brain, you know, our brain chemistry or whatever. For some evolutionary purpose, I suppose, has built this into our hardwired this into our systems. But I feel like there's some things we can do to overcome that. But I mean, like I'm thinking about instances in which the backfire effect worked like on me. And I remember one time I had a friend who said something like leather is OK. You know, the, the skin of a dead cow is OK to wear because it's merely a byproduct of this system. And in my head, I was like, I don't have any arguments aside from the fact that I don't want to kill animals. But then I went and like researched a bunch of things and I'm like, aha, now I have 10 arguments for why leather is not merely a byproduct. and in fact drives animal exploitation and all of these things. And so it was just like, you know, it, it works not even just as like some psychological mechanism. It works because you then go and try to find information to disprove mm. the other person. And like oh. you're you're strengthening your arguments based off of other arguments that other people have made already. And so that is one thing that it's not just like, oh, your cloud of per perception has gotten stronger for some reason. It's also because we actually go and research, which is detrimental in the online space because everybody now has a search engine at their fingertips. And so it's not like you're just having a conversation on the street where you can then Google and pull up five articles that prove why said person is wrong. So it's important to keep that in mind when we are engaging in online discussions and the online discourse from the research that I have done on the backfire effect. One of the reasons why this thing happens is because we tie our sense of self to our views about the world. And so people don't want to lose that sense of self. So for instance, say part of their worldview involves gun control or something. And then you come along with some argument, either super in favor of or super against gun control. And gun control is sort of a part of their you know, they're, they're in group that they are a part of, and they feel like they have to maintain that view about gun control because that's a part of who they are. That's a part of their identity. And that's one of the reasons why we are so firmly entrenched in our beliefs and don't want to let go of them because we think it's a part of our sense of self, which is tied to our social groups. And as humans, most of us, even, even little introvert me, still really wants to be a part of social groups. Mm. So things to do when you are combating the backfire effect is letting people know that they don't have to change who they are. And I, I believe that that's a 
a strategy known as like filling the gap, which I've seen described as essentially if there's a table with four legs and you want to remove a leg, you can't just pull it out. You have to swap it with a new leg. So explain to people why a certain thing, certain new view actually does fit in with their sense of self. Maybe that's not always going to be the case. A lot of what we're trying to do as activists is creating radical worldview change. But for instance, with like veganism, if someone's like, it's a strong part of my religion to eat animals that you can replace that with, well, actually look at all of these great, you know, people from this specific religion that are vegan and explain why veganism is actually a strong, like strongly emphasized by said religion and like finding ways to make sure people know they don't have to change their social group, change their worldview or lose their sense of self is a really important part of dealing with the backfire effect. And I also think just knowing the backfire effect exists helps us examine it and try to go, am I just experiencing confirmation bias and backfire effect when I'm having this conversation? Should I actually be much more open to this argument someone is presenting to me? Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting what you were saying about identity. And I wonder if part of that too could be showing how being compassionate, having compassion for animals is your identity. You know, you already, it's kind of like tapping into that. You already believe animals shouldn't suffer. You're already a compassionate person. This is just an extension. Veganism is just an extension of that compassionate identity already. So something, something like that, maybe. Yeah. I think like letting people know that we believe in them and that we are presenting these ideas to them because we believe in their innate compassion and empathy and all of that stuff, as opposed to presenting it like you are a a horrible heathen and a moral transgressor and you need to right your wrongs. There's a whole world of difference in how those things will be received by those you're trying to talk to. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to bring in a new topic and I want to talk about the importance of being culturally and racially sensitive and making sure that our posts and interactions are compassionate to all communities, are inclusive and kind to everyone. And I'll start by saying that, you know, just kind of acknowledging that we are two white people talking about this. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I don't want to speak for Andy, but for myself, I, I might not get everything right. But if I do ever say something now or ever that is insensitive or problematic, please let me know. I want to know. I, I don't want to ever be seen as someone who is racially or culturally insensitive because I don't see myself that way. And it's very important to me. Uh, and, and so I'm, I'm educating myself on how to, to be better and do better. And, uh, and Andy, I don't know if you want to say anything about that in the beginning here. I didn't, I don't mean to speak for you. No, I mean, I think I'm, I'm fine with all that. Okay. <laughs> and I guess just starting off, I want to emphasize that just being aware of and talking about other social issues it doesn't take energy away from the animals. It doesn't distract from the animals. It doesn't mean that you have to do any of your vegan activism less. I think 
on the contrary, it really strengthens and enhances our activism when we're making these connections. It's, it's just so important to make connections with other communities, to make sure that everyone is comfortable in the vegan community and to see the connections, all the, the connections of the systematic oppressions of humans and non-humans. But at the same time, to be careful not to compare atrocities because each community's experience is unique to them. So we need to be careful of that. And there's there's a lot to learn. I'm still learning about it. I'm still learning how to talk about it. And I, I would encourage you to listen to episode 20 of the Hope for the Animals podcast. We talked about racial justice and animal advocacy in that episode. It's, you know, it's just really a huge issue. There's so much that it encompasses. Also, uh, body uh, shaming and fat shaming, as Andy and I talked about in a past episode as well. So, so Andy, what, what would you like to add about this? Well, there's a couple of things that come to mind. I think that I, I absolutely want to echo and, and underline your point that it is that it strengthens our activism if we become aware of and educated on other social justice struggles, I think one, just because it's the right thing to do, I think that those of us, especially that benefit the most from these, these systems of oppression, certainly, you know, myself as a, as a white able-bodied man, um, I benefit immensely, whether I personally try to reject it or not, I'm still always benefiting from these things. So I think it's my responsibility to do my best to learn about, be a good ally or accomplice, uh, or, you know, j just to, to do my best to make sure that the activism I engage in is not causing further harm, whether, you know, even if it's unintentional. And so I think that there is so much great activism and writing around how all forms of oppression are kind of intertwined and commingling and intersect in various ways. And that learning about those things just strengthened my activism. And I think that it's like absolutely crucial that we do that. Yeah. So, so there's, there's that. And then I will also say that I think that it's important as activists that we are always just kind of making sure our own backyard is clean before we're looking over at the next person's uh, and sort of like overstepping our bounds, like in the, you know, the realm of picking and choosing our battles. I find that we see a lot of vegans who are like, I need to speak on this thing that's happening halfway around the world or this thing in a community that I am not personally a part of. And that we should always recognize that there is so much activism to be done in our own backyard, in our own communities. And it's always, in my opinion, really important to focus there for a number of reasons, but mostly because we're going to be the most effective when we are talking to people who are the most like us. And so I think that it's important for us, you know, we're trying to be sensitive, like culturally sensitive, for instance, that we understand that we are not a part of other people's cultures. And even if we learn a lot about them, we probably don't know all the specific little ins and outs of everything that's going on. And perhaps our analysis of what's happening there and what needs to be done to fix it probably definitely is best done by those that are actually a part of those communities and likely already exist and are already doing that work. Mm -hmm. So I think that, that that's like a really important thing to, to keep in mind um, but even working within our own backyards, yeah, we might be as like white people, maybe we are 
yeah, making certain comparisons that are not appropriate, using certain language that's not appropriate. And that's why it's important to be learning from people that can explain not just why it's like not appropriate, but why it could actually be actively harmful or excluding people from particular cause that we're trying to get people on board with. So things that I keep in mind before I'm making a post or making a comment is asking myself, one, does this need to be said? Two, does it need to be said in this particular forum? And does it need to be said by me? And I think asking ourselves those things before we post can really lead us to doing work where we're actually going to be the most effective and the most understanding of like the cultural nuances of you know whatever it might be. Yeah, that's good. And I think it's important really to listen, listen to the communities, listen to what people are saying or telling you. And also, I just want to say that intent really is not an excuse or, or enough. So a lot of times something gets posted that is problematic and that person will say that, well, my intent was good. My intent was noble. I, I wanted to help animals. And sure, that that can absolutely be true that, you know, I, I understand you had good intention, but the result was not good. The result was that you actually pushed out a segment of the community or are making a segment of the community upset or feel hurt. Well, then the outcome didn't match your intent because if our intent is to help animals, to help in the suffering of animals, as many animals as possible, then we want the result of our actions to include everyone, to make everyone feel included and welcome in the vegan community, to make everyone want to go vegan. There's there's 1400 different ways that you could have said whatever it was that was said or whatever meme or whatever image, whatever words that were deemed problematic. It's, it's just not necessary to hold on to it or defend those words or images. You know, it, it just let it go, find another way to say it and probably a better way to say it. Why waste energy and time on defending, you know, just, ah, it's, it's, it's frustrating to see sometimes. And I think our time could be better spent finding words and memes that include everyone. And that I believe will help more animals. Yeah. I think it's important to remember that we should be holding ourselves to the same standards we're setting for everybody else. And so as it relates to like vegan activism, right? We, if we present someone with new information, we want them to go, oh, you're right. I'm changing my mind and I'm changing my ways. Right. And for some reason, when it comes to other people bringing you know, information to me on some post that I have made about why it might not be the coolest thing to have written or whatever, that all of a sudden I am pulling out all the, all the backfire effect in the world and all <laughs> of the confirmation bias and all of these things. And all of a sudden I am assuming that I am like the perfectly formed activist that couldn't possibly be wrong on anything. And, and, and maybe it is the case that someone brings something to you and they are, you know, they're not coming from a place of good intentions or they don't have a good view on it, whatever. But I think it's important to like, always take a step back, take that breath, try to understand what that person is saying, why they would say that thing, potentially ask follow-up questions and make sure that we're just holding ourselves to the same standard that we're asking of other people. Yeah. 
So I have kind of an interesting story. When I worked, I worked at a natural food store a long time ago, and we had this tea and on the tea, it was called gypsy tea. And it had a picture, it depicted this woman that what you, what you would think of in your head of a gypsy hippie woman with lots of skirts and a tambourine and the, you know, that sort of look. And there was a woman, we had a shopper, a customer who brought to our attention that she was uh, Roma, that her ancestry, her her uh, culture was Roma, and that that was really offensive to her. And she gave us some insight into the Roma community and how gypsy is a very derogatory term. And there was this huge debate in our natural food store over this. And, you know, it was a bunch of white hippie kids that to us, gypsy, that that was like something to aspire to, you know, it was like, oh, a hippie, a gypsy, uh, it was seen positively. But we listened to what she had to say. She came to, I think, a board meeting or something, and we listened and we decided to pull the tea from the shelf just for her comfort and, you know, because we didn't want to lose her as a shopper. But also because I think we acknowledged that even if we don't understand, you know, even if it's just not within our realm of experience at all to understand why something was offensive, uh, we just need to, to listen, to believe her. And she was just one person, one customer, but we pulled that tea from the shelf because, you know, that's more important. Her comfort, understanding her was more important to us than defending something that we obviously didn't know, didn't understand, you know? So I think that that's a kind of a good analogy of what's going on with some of these posts and memes and words. Yeah. I mean, I think also you look at that story and you're like, what did your, what did the, the store like lose, you know, really like one small item off the shelf, but what did that person gain? knowing that they were being respected and cared for and their perspective was acknowledged and appreciated. So something that kind of goes along with this, what we've been talking about is the tendency for some vegans to be misanthropic and misanthropy is basically the, the general hatred of humans, just the hatred of all mankind. And I think that, you know, as animal people, we can relate to a degree. Of course, you know, what's happening to the animals is just horrible and they're suffering so much and it's all caused by humans. So we can certainly feel a degree of anger and resentment towards humans. But what is kind of happening is this general expressing of these views by vegans. And I I don't think that this is helping animals. And I know you've talked about this as well on your podcast. And I, you know, I, I guess examples of misanthropy, what we're talking about, it can kind of be seen in the vegan community with comments that like compare what's happening to animals to humans, like that humans should be skinned alive or boiled alive or something like that, or or when farm workers are are attacked or or slaughterhouse workers, things like that. And Andy, maybe you can give some some other examples. But if 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 you have these misanthropic views and you really want to help animals, 
you probably want to keep that stuff to yourself. It's, I don't think it's really helping. (laughs) And I know that you and Paul have talked about this issue a lot on your podcast, the Bearded Vegans podcast, and, and how this relates and connects to racism and sexism and, and other, all manner of problematic views, because there are vegan activists out there who use misanthropy to deflect and to say, oh, well, I just hate everyone. I'm not racist. I'm an equal opportunity hater. <laughs> so I, I know you have probably a lot to say about this issue. What, what do you think about misanthropy in the vegan community? Well, I'd like to consider myself a reformed misanthropist because I, I definitely used to fall into that that category. And like you said, it's really easy to to feel that anger at sort of the collective humanity because of what's happening, not just to animals, but just to our planet. And so I think it manifests itself in the things that you said, but also just sort of this attitude of, you know, humans are a plague on this earth. And if, if all humans disappeared, the earth would thrive, but the same can't be said of other species and things like that. And I think that uh, obviously we are a very destructive force on the, this earth, but I don't think that we have to be. And I think this, this view that we are this, this plague and that if, if we all just died off, everything would be fine is kind of ignoring the fact that like humans were a part of our ecosystem for a very long time. It's sort of only this kind of final little blip of our existence where we have exceeded our capacity and, and like removed ourselves from this ecosystem. So, so that aside, I think that as far as it relates to activism, uh, there's this quote from Cornell West that, uh, that I've always loved that says, you can't lead the people unless you love the people. Mm-hmm. And so if you think about what so many vegan activists are focusing on, which is individual one-on-one hearts and mind change type activism, how could you possibly like change somebody that you hate? You know, if you're constantly feeling that towards somebody, I think it's really antithetical towards the change, which I, in my humble opinion, think is what will get us there, which is change and activism that is based on connection and empathy. And so I think that like misanthropy is, is, although I understand it misguided and ultimately really counterproductive to what it is that we're trying to do. I think that we have to believe in humanity and our ability to change in order to have hope for the future and and to believe that our activism can actually do anything. Yeah. Well said, you know, I think I'd add to, and I, and I kind of said this in the beginning is that I, I think it's okay to express our anger at the state of the world and what humans are doing and all of that. I mean, I think it's okay to be emotional and be realistic about the horrible things that are happening, but I think we have to find constructive ways to express that anger and and have that emotion so that we're not attacking individuals, not attacking. I think, again, you have to put yourself in the mind of a non-vegan and realize that most people love people. They love their families. They love their children. And to them, humans are the most important thing. So expressing these misanthropic views, I think, can be really counterproductive and doesn't endear you to someone. And it just, it perpetuates that stereotype that vegans only care about animals. 
I, I just really think that that expressing these views, these misanthropic opinions and stuff, it's it's kind of uh, it's kind of self pleasuring. I won't use the word that I. I'm <laughs> a family friendly show, but uh, I can see where it would make you feel good, feel cathartic, you know. Uh, but do we just want that adrenaline rush of the endorphins from saying what you're feeling and, you know, or, or do we want to really uh, analyze if we're using effective outreach and effective activism? So I think what you said was right on that we need to have empathy for our audience, with our audience, to get them to hear us. And I'll say, I, I, I wanna say this too, with all that we've been talking about with misanthropy, as well as racism and transphobia and anything, any anything that we have been talking about, we, we can't and shouldn't let these things go unchallenged. I don't want our attempt at like calming and soothing the vegan hostility to make it sound like we shouldn't address these things. It's just how we address them in a more constructive and effective way. And I, I heard this, I thought this was really interesting. I heard this on another podcast, the Freedom of Species podcast. The guy said, if you invite wolves and sheep to the party, you're only gonna get wolves. So if marginalized communities feel unwelcome, uh, or just even generally humans feel unwelcome with misanthropy, they aren't going to want to come to the vegan party. We really need to make sure that all are welcome, that we're being sensitive and caring to all beings, humans and non-humans. But, you know, Andy, I actually, I want to ask you, though, if you think that there is a line, a line in the sand somewhere where we should be calling out something or someone publicly or privately. And I think you can also, you know, call in, and we haven't really talked about that, but calling in, of course, is public or private way, being more respectful and kind about your calling out. Uh, but do you think that there is a place where there's either a line that's crossed or a situation where things should be called out publicly or privately? That's a that's a good question. I mean, there's definitely a line, and it, I, it's like I'm struggling to articulate what that line might be. And that, honestly, I feel like it just sort of is one of those things where, like, you know, you know it when you see it. Yeah. But but I think that it's important. Like, so for instance, on on the Beard Vegans podcast, when we started out, we would often really like sort of name specific individuals and really kind of examine and go in on them. And over time, we realized that the attitudes that individuals express are not, they don't exist in a vacuum, right? They, they didn't just form out of nowhere. They exist because of being entrenched in a society that is perpetuating those views or whatever it might be, systemic injustice. I, I found that like specifically really addressing individuals and demanding their accountability and demanding that they change and all of those things is is often way less effective and even satisfying than actually just talking about the systems that that created those views. So it doesn't mean that you have to like leave everything be and just only talk about systems, but I think that our our faith in activism only as a form of getting individuals to change their actions. I think it has really limited parameters. 
So for me, I am way less interested in things that can be considered like calling out or calling in because I just feel like they're not really doing what we think that they want to do. Not that there isn't a place for them, but that like it's an overused technique. Well, Andy, I, I we should probably wrap up soon. And I want to give another plug for Andy's podcast, The Bearded Vegans, because if you go to their archives, they have probably two or three episodes on each one of these subjects that we've touched on today. So go and listen and subscribe. They rock. And and also your starter guide. They have you've you've put together because you have like over 200 episodes or something. You've put together this starter guide. So when someone wants to start listening, they can listen to these few episodes. I think it's like six or so episodes to get started. And I know that a couple of those episodes are subjects that we have touched on today. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. So if you are a Spotify user, you can go to thebeardedvegans.com slash start here. And that will bring you straight to that playlist of those specific episodes we recommend. We recorded a little bit of a, an intro just sort of about who we are, and then we recorded new introductions for uh, each of the five starter episodes. The first one is about the backfire effect. One of them is about misanthropy in veganism as well. So those are good, good places to start. The other thing you can do is just scroll through the episode list and find something that interests you. But as of now, we have uh, almost 270 episodes released. So it's, it can be overwhelming to kind of crack into something. And so, yeah, hope, hopefully the starter guide is a good place for, for people to get in. That was such a great idea. I loved that. Well, it's really been wonderful. Thank you so much for your really thoughtful insights on all of this. Do you have any final thoughts about this? Any, any hope for the future of online activism? <laughs> You know, I, I, as we have discussed the last time we talked about the hope thing, I have hope because I have to, as far as online goes, it feels very <laughs> hopeless because we are kind of at the mercy of the algorithm machine, which incentivizes outrage and arguments and not actually being empathetic and connecting with people. So I think that, you know, finding ways to bypass that even as simply as you've suggested of going into someone's DMs and private messages. I think that that gives me hope knowing that we can find ways around these, you know, actual like literal technical systems that are, that are kind of incentivizing us to turn against each other and, and tribalism and all of that kind of stuff. So if, if what you as an individual believe is going to get us to animal liberation is activism that only involves one-on-one -on -one individual type of change, and changing hearts and minds and all that kind of stuff, that the importance of instilling and embedding empathy and, and a desire for human connection into what you're doing is just absolutely crucial towards actually making progress. Because uh, something that I've really been trying to think about and really been trying to put into my activism is not just burning down the things that need to be burned down, but also building up what needs to be built up and actually having a world that I want to live in and something to step into as we create this kind of change and activism that's only based on shaming people and coercing people and manipulating them and fear-based compliance and all of that kind of stuff 
that's not the world that I want to step into. And so creating connections based on empathy, um, I think is such an important thing to do and creating community and harnessing our collective power to create change, um, in my opinion, is, is incredibly important. I have, I have hope, but it's, it's, uh, it's a test for sure. <laughs> Yeah, fight the system. <laughs> uh, it's true. We didn't even talk about all that with the uh, that movie, The Social Dilemma. Uh, I recommend that movie and and all the algorithms that kind of uh, pull us in and and keep us addicted, really, to the online world. So yeah, so so much to dig into. Maybe we'll, we'll have to have you back and we'll do some more. How about it? Absolutely. And if you watched The Social Dilemma and you enjoyed that, I highly recommend a film called Coded Bias, mm. which is, I think, a really great companion piece to The Social Dilemma. All right. Awesome. We'll put that in the show notes as well. And Andy, thank you so, so much for joining me. It's just been wonderful. I'm glad we got to have our panel discussion, our animal rights panel discussion. It's been a ton of fun. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Hope. Thank you for listening to the Hope for the Animals podcast. I want to thank Andy for letting me live out my bearded vegan's fantasy camp experience and co-host a podcast with him. It was great fun. He is my podcast superhero for sure. So be sure to check out the Bearded Vegans podcast if you haven't yet. And as we grow this podcast, I'm going to ask you to take some action if you feel that this was important content, please share it. Also leave us a positive rating or review and help us spread the word about this podcast in any way you can. The more people we reach, the more compassion we spread, the more love grows, the more hope there is for creating a just, compassionate world. And as Andy said, it's so important to create connections based on empathy. Please spread the love and live vegan. Oh,